0: Hey, my name is Joey Jimenez. Um, I recognize a lot of you, and some of you are brand new faces to me, which is exciting. So up until just a few weeks ago, I was a pastor here at New Life Downtown. Now I get to teach Sunday school. And the blessing of that is I get to speak for an hour rather than 30 minutes. So come on, this is a win-win for me. You be the judge of that at the end of the hour, all right? Hey, before we get started, let me say a quick prayer for us this morning, and then we'll dive in. I'm excited about this topic I know this is week two of a three-week series that New Life Downtown that we are doing called Loving Our Homeless Neighbor. What does that look like? What does that mean? So let me pray. We'll give a quick recap for those of you who were here last week, and then we'll dive right into what we're talking about this morning, all right? So Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space, where we're so very grateful um, for this morning, so gra- very grateful for this time, so gra- very grateful for this subject. Jesus, Lord, your heart for the poor. So Lord, as we dive in, as we lace up, as we look at your scriptures, as we look at what the Bible says about your heart for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized, as we look at what the Bible says about how the church should respond to those who are without, to those, uh, to those poor, to those vulnerable in this society, in our context today, Lord, would you help us to not miss you in the midst of it? And Lord, would you light something in our hearts, something unique for each one of us? Would you begin to stir up those things that you have in mind for us? And would you lead us into a deeper knowledge of you, Jesus, through all of it um, today and and certainly moving forward? So we give you all the glory. You are invited into this space. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to see if I can adjust this a bit and avoid some of that moving. Hey, so week two, how many of you guys, just out of curiosity, just to see where we're starting off from, how many of you all were able to be here last week when Matthew Ayers was speaking? Awesome. So uh, just to start, a few maybe highlights from you guys. We're going to participate a bit this morning, so maybe a few highlights. What were some things that stood out to you as we kind of talked about demystifying what it means to be homeless? Who are the homeless? What are the circumstances surrounding homelessness? Maybe a few of you, if you'd be willing to share, what were some things that stuck? Yeah. 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 It's good. Every human being has a story, and every one of them is a child of God, just like we are. What were some? What were a few others? Jacob. hmm. Yeah, it's good. So different kind of stages of homelessness, different stages of poverty. We're going to talk a little bit more broad this morning about poverty, but different stages of homelessness from chronic homelessness, which is what most folks would consider three years plus to situational homelessness, which is maybe, hey, I, I lost my job today and I, I don't have a place. I can't afford rent. So maybe a day or two days at a time, and then what some folks will call episodic homelessness, which is maybe three weeks, but random kind of levels of homelessness, degrees of homelessness. What were a few others, some things that stood out from last week if you were here? I know Matthew was riveting. Come on, I love sitting around this guy. Okay. So this morning, we're going to jump into uh, part three, excuse me, part two of this series. We're kind of demystifying what does this term homelessness actually mean. This morning, we're going to lace up a bit. We're going to look through scripture. We're going to actually explore a little bit of what the Bible says about how we, the church, and when I say church this morning, I I want to distinguish between that. I I want to be clear about what I mean by that term, how we, the church, what I mean by that is the body and its members. How we, the church, we are all here. We represent those of us who call New Life Downtown home. We represent New Life Downtown. And individually, when we go out of this place on Sundays, when we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in our homes, when we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in our workplaces, when we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ at a coffee shop, we are members of the body of Christ. So when I say church, I am referring to the people of God, the corporate people of God, the body and its members. Okay, so this morning we're going to explore what's the church supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? What does the Bible say? How does it instruct us with how we're supposed to both look at and respond to this issue of poverty and individuals who may be in a place of poverty? You guys may be familiar with this painting, with this story. This is from Luke chapter 10. This is a painting, a depiction of the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to talk about this story a bit later. This Photo you guys may recognize. Can anyone tell me where that is? Yeah, that's on the ceiling. That's on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. It's one of my absolute favorite paintings. It's Michael, uh, uh, Michelangelo's, correct? I don't know why I just blinked on that. It's Michelangelo's depiction of the creation story. And I love this picture for so many reasons. I love the interaction between. God and I love the interaction between man, between Adam, and you see this faint kind of touch come together in the center of this picture. What do you notice about this picture? What do you notice about their postures? Yeah! God is reaching out, and in fact, the angels are trying to pull him back. They're trying to say no. They're trying to guard him. But his posture is such that he is determined. He is reaching out with everything. And what is man's posture? Aside from being naked. Let's get past the obvious. What's man's posture? Very casual, just kind of laid back, barely exerting his arm, very much saying, you come to me. You come to me. I love this photo. This is another photo that some of you may have seen. This was captured just a few, actually, this was captured just maybe about a year or two ago. When I saw this photo, it was on the cover of Christianity Today. When I saw this next photo, I could not help but think about this photo. Notice the similarities. I can't help but think that the photographer who captured this shot. So this was on the cover of Christianity Today. The, the caption of this photo was simply three words. God at work. And this picture is depicting the refugee crisis. The photo was taken in Greece. Greece. And in it, you see what? In it, I see men and women helping one another. I see value of life. I see fear. I see hope. I see a lot of individuals with different stories side by side. And I love that when I look at this photo, when I saw this photo first come out, when I saw this photo hit my mailbox, I was like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful picture and what an accurate title, God at Work. So creation, we know this was every bit and only. Creation was God's work and God's work alone. And we know one of my favorite professors in college used to say that if if we look at scriptures, if we look at the Gospels and consider Jesus' earthly ministry... He, he said this once, he said it was a colossal failure in terms of where he went, how far he traveled from home, three years really, the Messiah coming for three years, didn't travel far from home, but we know the answer to that question, right? We know that God's plan was always to continue the work of revealing the kingdom through the disciples, through the men and women who would call him their king. Who would call him their Lord and Savior so I love this God at work and in so many ways I think when I think about what is our responsibility what do we owe to the poor I'm borrowing that statement from Tim Keller what do we owe to the poor I think so much of it could be captured in this image so much of the hospitality the generosity the friendship the kindness so much of what we are invited to step into I think is captured in this photo Matthew 25, familiar passage, says this. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats will place on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I am so sorry. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, you know this. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse. These are strong words, are they not? Depart from me, you curse. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick. And in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then you will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to do me a favor. We're going to do a little bit of participation. So those of you who are taking notes, you can write this down. For those of you who are taking notes on a smartphone, write them on your smartphone. But I want you to take just 120 seconds, and I want you to finish this statement. God is, and we're going to go rapid fire. As many words, as many things, as many descriptions, that you adjectives that you can come up with. I want you to finish that statement for me. God is... If you don't have something to write with, that's fine. Begin making perhaps a mental list. 15 more seconds I have no idea where that falls in the realm of 120 I just made it up and I'm going to need some of you to be brave so be thinking about it or don't make eye contact one of the two All right, so somebody who's ready, we're going we're to do ready golf. So when somebody's done, you just jump in if you have one. So help me finish that sentence. God is? All seeing. And say them loud, please. Generous. Generous. Redeeming the earth. Defender. Love. All knowing. Enough. Eternal, okay. Creator, holy, and every one of us. us. Come on, man. Forgiving, healer, faithful, faithful, kind, friend, refuge, savior. List goes on, right? I think it's a great exercise. I think all too often we're like, well, these things are all true whether I write them down or not, but I don't know that I live that way, to be honest. I think I need the reminders of those things because those are What? Would you say those are good news or that is bad news that God is fill in the blank, that God is all of those things that we just listed? Good news or bad news? Yeah, it's great news. I mean, hearing that regardless of your situation, right? Whether you, in, you are in times of, of abundance and in times of provision and times of kindness and your heart feels full, or whether you're in times where, where things are lean and tight and you're without regardless of, of what your circumstances and your situation, that God is faithful, kind, kinder, refuge, defender, holy and in, inside of me. That is good news. And here's what I love about this. I want you to write down three more words for those of you who are taking notes. I'm going to give you those three words. And those three words are this. So at the bottom of your list, if you made a list, or off to the side, however you want to do it, Get creative. I want you to write down these three words. So am I. So am I. So am I. Those things describe the character, the nature, the personality of God, right? The things that we shared aloud. So am I. The beauty of that is, regardless of our circumstances, they depend. They describe God's character, and guess what the Bible tells us about God's character? It's unchanging. That He is always those things. Now, we can include a lot. We can include just. We could include a lot of terms that maybe didn't float to the surface of our brains. But all of these things are true of God, and guess what? For those of you, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those of us in whom God's very life, breath, fire, the, the Spirit, the Greek word for Spirit meaning all of those, life, breath, fire, that for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, guess what? The very same Spirit that dwelt, that lived and breathed, that dwelt, that existed inside of Jesus Christ, exists inside of you. Now stop and think about that for a second, because if that doesn't offend you a little bit, it should. Think about that. Think about your story where you come from, your baggage, what you bring, what you brought this morning on a Sunday morning. Think about your story. Now think about what I just said, that for those of you who are in Christ, the very same fire, breath, and spirit that God bestowed, that God sent, that remained on Jesus at the time of his baptism, lives and breathes inside of you, that very same spirit. I have a friend who once said that the Holy Spirit does not need your help to be more of himself. He just always is. So guess what? Everything that you wrote down, God is, God is, God is. I want you to hear this. You are, and you are becoming. Okay? You are, and you are becoming. So what I want to say this morning at the outset of this is you are good news, Casey. Believe it or not, man. I believe it. You are good news. Brian, you're good news as well. Britt, you're good news. And I want you to think about who, to whom, you may be good news. Certainly family, friends, coworkers, our children. But who else? To who else, to whom else might you be good news? This morning, we're going to take a look at two questions. A good friend of mine, who some of you know, I'm not going to say his name, once said this to me, we were hanging out at the Commons. He is an individual currently in a situation of chronic homelessness and we're talking about Jesus Christ we're talking about the personality of Jesus We're talking about the things the Bible says are true about Jesus we're talking about Jesus being the bread of life and this is his I don't know where he got this but I'm quoting him I can't give his name but this is what he said man does not live on bread alone we know who said that correct guy by the name of Jesus this is what my friend said Man cannot live on bread alone, but he sure can't live without it. He sure cannot live without it. What we were talking about, what he was talking about is the very real and tangible needs that he has in his life, namely food. Not knowing where it's going to come from. Shelter he's gotten he's figured out. But food. So I thought this was pretty provoking when he said it. And again, I don't know if he stole it, where it came from or what, but I love that sentence because it has changed the way I think About my brothers and sisters whose situations look different than mine. Man cannot live on bread alone. We know that to be true. And I also believe the second part of the statement is true as well. Those of you who are doctors would agree. But he sure cannot live without it. So this morning we're going to take a look at two questions. I already referenced them briefly. The first question is this. What do the scriptures reveal about God's heart for the poor? What do the scriptures tell us? about God's heart for the poor. I want to tell you this. This book is more than just instructions for how to do life. Okay? We know that. This book is just more than an, an instructional manual on how to do life well. How to do life in a pleasing way to God. But these, this book, these pages, these words contain the very bread of life. The, these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of God spoken through the prophets. And so one of my friends has said this about Scripture. He's like, every time we open the book to study, every time we dive into this, he's a theologian, he's a seminary student, so he uses the word exegesis. I prefer Bible study. They both mean the same thing. He said, every time we open the Bible to do a Bible study, it should lead us into a place of encounter. Not just the how can we do life well, How are we supposed to? But what does this actually show me about the heart of my Creator? Who is He? What is He like? That list that you started, maybe that's the first time you've ever done that, we can make that a comprehensive list. And I love that. That every time we open the Bible, it should lead us to a place of encounter. Because God's nature, we read this, we see this in His personality, in His presence, the things that that He said, the things that He did, God's nature is contained in His ways. And His ways, His nature is unchanging. And the second question we're going to take a look at this morning is this. How does the Bible instruct the church, again, the body and its members, to care for the poor, the people of God? And I want to say this about this particular question. This is a two-way street, okay? And here's what I mean by that. How does the Bible instruct the church? The corporate church, the body... And it's individual members, us, men and women, sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. How does the Bible instruct us to care for the poor? What I mean by saying that's a two-way street is if God has put something on the heart of your church, if God has put something on the heart of New Life Downtown and it is not on your heart, you should ask why. You should ask why. You should ask Glenn. You should ask Evan. You should ask the men and women in leadership of this church, why? You should ask the Lord, Lord, why have you put this on the heart of my believing body? And what do you have in mind, if anything, to do on mine? And also, this is why I said this is a two-way street, if God has, something, if God has put something on the radar of your heart that isn't on the heart, isn't on the radar of your church, you should also do likewise. You should ask Why? You should ask why of the Lord. You should also ask why of your church. You should ask, why, why, why. what is our stance? What is our involvement? How could we, how might we, how should we, why aren't we engaging in this way? Because anyone next door, Glenn, Evan, Jace, anyone of our pastoral team would say this, that the job of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so the church may be desperate for you to bring that up, Okay. So Micah 6.8, this verse, I hope, is, is on your radars. Um, I will not tell you you should commit it to memory, but you should commit it to memory. Um, I'm not a pastor anymore, so I can get away with saying that. I was 15, I had met the Lord like a week earlier, and my young life leader, the guy who led me to Jesus, with a bunch of high school kids sitting around the breakfast table, gave us this passage and said, fellas, we're going to come back to this again and again and again until you get it. Micah 6.8 says this, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? We're going to do a bit of word study at the beginning that word justice, to do justice, you'll notice that it's a very active word. The way that he uses it through, the, through Micah is a very active word, to do justice. We're going to talk about that in a second. Mishpah is what that word in Hebrew means. And that word means to treat people in a fair and impartial way. It means to give, to freely give what is due. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, Recognizes that each individual has a story, recognizes that each individual is a son or a daughter, a child of God, and deserves to be treated. To give them their fair due means to be treated like a child of God. To give them their fair due. It also means, mishpah also is used throughout the Old Testament within reference to punishing wrongdoing. The reference that most people can think of is an eye for an eye. It's often used in that same context throughout the Old Testament. And at the same time, it's also used in a positive, giving people what they deserve. This reference in Deuteronomy 18 has to to do with priests receiving their financial compensation. Not compensation, but their financial, them being taken care of financially. Giving people what they deserve. The next word is mercy. I don't have a great Hebrew accent, but that is pronounced chesed. And you guys have heard that word before. It's often translated in your Bibles throughout the Proverbs as loving kindness. It's God's unconditional grace and compassion. And the last word that we pull out of there, mercy, if, if justice, if to do justice, do justice is an active word. Love, mercy, I think is an attitude. Okay? It's my thought. An attitude is actually an aeronautical term. Any pilots in this room? Anyone like to fly? Any nerds like me who just like to read that stuff? Attitude is an aeronautical term, and it has to do with the position of your nose in reference to the earth. So if you have a positive attitude, your nose is pointed up. If you have a negative attitude, your nose is pointed down. With a positive attitude, the, the natural flow of everything pushes the plane up, and that creates a lock. With a negative attitude, think about this in life too, okay? With a negative attitude, the natural flow pushes a plane which way? Down which is where we get positive attitude and negative attitude. To love mercy, I think, is a very positive attitude, outwardly and inwardly. And then the last word, to walk humbly. I couldn't find the great definition for to walk and humbly, but the word humility is anah. And that means with gentleness and meekness. I use this word a lot when sitting with couples, talking through premarital counseling, and the definition, the picture I love to offer people when we think about humility, so think about our relationships, this is the picture. I want you to imagine, Rachel, that I am putting something in your hands, so put out your hands, and just pretend, alright? So what I am putting in your hands is a vase that was made by God himself, and it is beyond fragile, but I'm going to give it to you, and I want you to hold it, okay? Okay? want you to hold it for the rest of the hour (laughs) I'm just kidding you don't have to but that's the picture of humility that's the picture of gentleness to hold something that has infinite value okay and humility also we won't spend too much time here is also a two-way street because that is recognizing who you are in God's eyes and holding that with infinite value recognizing that holding that gently believing that you did not earn, that you did not create yourself, that you do not breathe yourself into existence every day. But there is someone who loves you unconditionally, and he has. And he has said, Julie, you are this, 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 and this. And you get to hold that gently. And Chauncey, he has said the same about you. You are these things. And you get to hold that gently. And you also get to enter into others, the story of others. And guess what? To walk humbly with God is to hold your identity in His hands and in your hands lightly, gently, with great caution and with great reverence and awe. And you also, Jacob, get to hold other people's stories in the same way, the men and the women that you interact with, whether it has a positive influence or negative influence that you get to hold, you get to walk humbly, not only alongside but as a representative, right? As an ambassador, you get to walk humbly with other people's stories. So we're going to camp on the first word, because I only have an hour. So we're going to camp on the word justice. Oftentimes throughout um, the Old Testament, just surveying the Old Testament for this first few minutes. Oftentimes, we find that word throughout the law, throughout the prophets, throughout the wisdom literature, wisdom literature being Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. We found justice being used in reference predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly in these four categories. The widow, the orphan, the alien, which is another term for saying foreigner, and the poor. These four categories. Let's have a few. If you don't mind, can I get a few folks to volunteer to read? We're going to read three or four passages. So, if somebody would read that as loud as you could, if you don't mind. not or not take advantage of
1: the If you do, you may to Somebody,
0: Leviticus. Deuteronomy,
1: just two pages.
0: Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart, because this, because of this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. This is a sobering statement. There will always be the poor among you, we read elsewhere in the Proverbs. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Proverbs 31, 8-9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Again, there's that word justice, judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Why do you think those four categories? Why do you think we find it so often? Why do you think we find that word justice, this idea of kindness and open-handedness and generosity towards the poor and the needy? Why do you think we find that term used so often within those four categories? Anybody? The most vulnerable. Okay. Why else? Yeah. It's good. So at the time, I, to be clear, so I'm, I referenced this earlier. So injustice was not something that was only, was not something that was, um, that only happened to the poor. Okay? The Bible is, the Old Testament is full of examples of the wealthy suffering injustice as well. But I think it's interesting that these four are highlighted, and most Old Testament scholars would say this. It's because at the time, in ancient Israel, at, the time of, at this ancient time, there were no systems. There was no support, whether public, private, communal. There was very little support that was built in for these people to survive. There's very little that was built in for these people to survive. It references injustice to the wealthy, but there was a distinction made that these people, that these individuals, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor, that these individuals were the most vulnerable at the time. So what does that tell you? Just stop for a second. Over 200 references, over 200 references in the Old Testament alone With regards to justice being directed towards the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. What does that tell you about the heart of God? I need some participation. Unless we need to all take a break and get coffee. What does that tell you about the heart of God? Yeah. So if there are not provisions made for them, we get to. The heart of God is poor? What do you mean by that?
1: Good. It's good.
0: Hmm. It's good really good God's God's heart is for the poor we often think that poverty is purely a negative word and actually throughout the New Testament when Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit it's actually a very positive word what's that absolutely Poverty of spirit throughout the New Testament, we're not going to camp there a ton. Poverty of spirit throughout the New Testament actually actually has the connotation of being dependent upon God. It's a very positive term. It's often used in most early church writings of the priests, of the monastics, of the early church fathers, that they were poor in spirit. Mother Teresa was poor in spirit. To, to reframe a bit how we think of that term, poverty of spirit. Throughout the Proverbs, so we're going to look at two pages, practices that were condemned and practices that were blessed. Just in the Proverbs alone, with regards to care and how we interact with the poor, these were practices, and again, this is taken purely from the Proverbs. These were practices that were condemned, oppressing the poor, mocking the poor, gloating over disaster, things that had happened to them that hadn't happened to you, shutting our ears to the cry of the poor, Exploiting the poor. Crushing the needy in court. Closing our eyes to the poor and not being concerned about justice for the poor. Ignoring the poor throughout the Proverbs shows as much contempt for God as actively oppressing the poor. Again, I took that from Timothy Keller's book. So practice is blessed. Throughout the Proverbs again, being kind to those in need Loving mercy, again. Lending to the poor. Oftentimes throughout the Old Testament when we hear lending to the poor, now there are distinctions that are made here. We're not going to get into this too much, but there are distinctions made to the brother and there are distinctions made to the foreigner. Lending to the poor is spoken generally to all. Lending to a brother or sister without interest and oftentimes lending to a foreigner without interest as well being generous, sharing food with the poor, caring about the justice, about justice for the poor, speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves, judging fairly, defending the rights of the poor and needy, being kind to the needy is equated with honoring God. So why justice? Why is justice important? Again, we talked about this a bit, because God's heart is for the most vulnerable. Therefore, He commands a strong word but the posture of the command in the law that's where we're pulling a lot of this from the law and the prophets these are commands these are not strong suggestions made by god hey i think if you do this it may go well these are commands do this i am the lord your god he says if there is ever an exclamation point an emphatic in the bible it is when god has to drop the i'm the lord your god card because god's heart is for the most vulnerable and therefore, he commands his people to care for them. And what I want to say here, again, Timothy Keller in his book, it's one of my favorites, Generous Justice in his book, distinguishes, differentiates between justice and charity. And there is a difference. When you think of charity, what comes to mind? When I think of charity, I think of giving freely. I think of, generosity. I think of being compelled by something. I think of uh, sympathy. I think of empathy. I think of something that strikes a chord with your heart and you give. But oftentimes, charity involves very little investment other than a one-time gift, perhaps. And justice is the exact opposite. Justice, according to the Old Testament, we're told that To deny kindness and generosity towards those who are without, to those who are in need, to deny them that is actually offensive to God. We are actually disobeying a command that God makes. And so if that's true, if it's disobeying a command that God has made, it's holding God in contempt, then it's actually not an option. It becomes an obligation. Justice becomes an obligation. We do not have the choice. We are instructed to, we are commanded to throughout the Old Testament. And I know what some of you are thinking, we're going to get there. How does that translate into New Testament times? We're going to get there in a second. The second part is to reveal God's glory among the nations. At this time, every culture, at this time, Old Testament, every culture revolved around, culture, societies revolved around the powerful and the elite. And so God chose Israel. God God picked Israel to be a chosen people, correct? God chose Israel in so many ways, just like the modern church, just like the church today. God chose Israel to be different, rather than being, sadly though, I think if if we were to give ourselves an honest appraisal, thinking of societies that revolved around the powerful and the elite, perhaps not much has changed. But God chose Israel to be different in that time. And I really believe in the bottom of my heart that God chose the people of God. God ordains the church to be different. To say regardless of status, regardless of privilege, regardless of power, authority, we get to be a representation. The church gets to be. We get to reveal God's glory among the nations. Deuteronomy, I think we have this in here. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. This is one of my favorite passages This was a memory verse in high school. Keep them and do them, the law, these commandments, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say of you, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous, so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? When we think about the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor, I think if we're being honest with what that means in a New Testament, what that means in a modern context, I think we have to add to that single mothers. I think we have to add to that. It included in that is is the refugee, the alien, the foreigner. I think included in that is the immigrant, the migrant worker. I think included in that are the elderly also. Did you know that the minimum, that the poverty line for a single mom with two kids, that the poverty line for a single mom with two kids is $50,000. If she's making less than that, she's below the poverty line. For a single mom with two kids, I know a lot of men and women in this room who don't make that. That's the poverty line for a single mom with two kids: fifty thousand dollars. That's what that's what the government has said she needs to make in order to be sustainable in life, in order to thrive. So the second, this question: What do the Old Testament laws reveal to us about God's heart for our relationship? I think when we I, I put this question up there. Because oftentimes when we think about these laws, so to bring it into a New Testament context, we have to ask the question, so how does that translate And what I, the, into this time, post-Jesus? okay? And we know the passage that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Jesus says. I came to be the fulfillment of these laws. I came to be the embodiment of what it looks like to live this perfectly. And it actually has very little to do with ascribing to this list and, and so much to do with ascribing to a relationship, right? This is what Jesus did. Jesus lived in relationship with God the Father like no one before or after has ever done. And by that, all these things just kind of got chucked off the list. He lived in perfect union with God the Father at all times. So what does it look like in New Testament context? I'm not going to camp your tongue, but I'm going to use one example. We read it in Leviticus. And I think it's so fascinating, especially for those of us who are involved in the business world, who are business owners, who are entrepreneurs, for those of you who are employers, who maybe who lead teams, even if you're not a business leader or a business owner, the gleaning law that we read about in Leviticus, so one of the laws for landowners, for those who were farmers, who worked their land, who cultivated their land, it was theirs, was that they were told not to harvest, not to take a harvest from the perimeter of their field. They're also told throughout the law, That as they are harvesting, that anything that, you know, as they're taking the sheath and as they're cutting down grapes or whatever they're farming, anything that falls to the ground, they're not to pick up. So if it doesn't make its way into the basket, if it doesn't make their way into their hands, anything that falls to the ground while they are harvesting, they're not to pick up. It also says that they're only supposed to harvest once. So if they don't do it in a day, they're done. They're not supposed to take a second harvest. All of these laws were in place for landowners. Don't you think it's their right? Don't you think it would be their privilege to say, hey, this is my farm. I'm going to milk every cent of profit out of this farm. Every kernel. If it falls to the ground, guess what? That's why I have kids. They're going to come out here with me. We're all going to pick them up. It's going to be family fair. Why do, you, what is it, why do you think God says something like that? Why do you think God puts something in there like that? Is it because he, he, he doesn't care about the guy who owns land? No. I think it reveals something. So the law was there. The law served a purpose. But I think the bigger question, what does this reveal about God's heart? Again, the bigger question when we think about Bible study, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about my father? What does this tell me about the way he does life and business? What does it tell me about the way he thinks about stewarding his stuff? Right? To me, it says this. I think that he did this. Again, this is me. I think that he did this to connect the landowner with the poor. I think rather than, than, than purely giving the landowner an opportunity to milk every cent of profit out of his farm, and then to give, to think that by only giving charitably, but making a donation, I think he did that to, so that the farmer, so that the landowner would know that that was not the only way that he could care for and look out for the needs of the poor. I think he did it to guard the landowner's dignity too. I think he also did it to guard the dignity of the poor. Because guess what? The landowner didn't bundle this all up and just say, hey, come and get it. He gave the poor, the law gives the poor an opportunity to come, to maintain their dignity. Not to sneak in and to steal, not to steal, but to come in and to work, to earn with their hands. That tells me something beautiful about God. And I think, we're not going to go there but I think it can have implications for how we think our business, our businesses. I think it can have radical implications for how we think about people we hire. I think it can have radical implications about how we do life, right? And there's so many more. That's one example of gleaning. The year of Jubilee is another. Oh my gosh. You guys familiar with the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years, land goes back to the previous owner. Land ownership, what most people today would say is the secret to wealth accumulation, owning property, owning land something beautiful intrinsically built into this law that most people miss every 50 years it would revert back so whether you would say all slaves were set free all debts were canceled it's beautiful and there's something in there that that paints a different picture about God's heart that most of us don't often think about all right we got to move new testament so what is Jesus what does Jesus say about justice this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, you guys. We're told that prior to this, that Jesus is led by the Spirit. I think, that, I think the language here in Luke's Gospel is so fascinating. Jesus is led by the Spirit. He's just gone toe-to-toe with the enemy in the garden, correct? He's fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. He's starving. And then all of this, what does the enemy come after? His identity? What does Jesus say? Nope. And then after that, he's ministered to by angels. He's led into the desert by the Spirit. He's led out of the desert in the power of the Spirit, is what Luke's gospel tells us. Something happens in that place. It's identity. We're not going to camp there, though. Jesus comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was, he custom, as was his custom, think about this moment. Like, maybe don't read, maybe just picture this. As was his custom, Jesus walks into the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. It says he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where this was written. Keep in mind, Jesus was a Jewish male. It's like all Jewish males. He was raised on this. He knew this inside and out. Not only was he Jesus, but he was also a good Jew. So he was raised on this. He grew up for 30 years having heard and recited and memorized this. This is true of me. This is true of me. This is true of me. It's so, such a beautiful picture of identity. And then Jesus stands up, and what does he say in front of the Sabbath, in front of the synagogue? He says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." I want you to think about that? He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. Okay, I I mean, then he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. All eyes are on Jesus, right? What? All eyes are on Jesus. He hands it back to him, And he begins to say to them, all eyes fixed on him. And he says, today... Today, this is their hope. This is what they had been waiting for. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sits down. As, that's like the, old te- that's the New Testament mic drop. Okay, Jesus did this before it was cool. Jesus just handed the scroll back to him and then just sat down. And I would imagine everyone's going, how do we internalize that? How do we process that? To proclaim, to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, Recovery of sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are are oppressed, excuse me, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Three times that word, proclaim. We think of proclamation, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Speaking. Communicating. Somebody standing on the street corner, right? That's what we think about when we think of somebody proclaiming. Today it looks different. It looks like Twitter. It looks like all sorts of things. Proclaiming. That was only part of what Jesus did. How did Jesus interact with the poor? How did Jesus interact with the vulnerable? What was that? Oh, sorry. What did he do? Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus stopped and he touched lepers. Jesus picked up, he he kneeled down, and he looked into the eyes of a woman caught in adultery, and what did he call her? Daughter. Jesus hung out with, he hung out with children. The disciples didn't want him to. Jesus said, no, bring him here. They, They weren't counted. They were insignificant at this time. That's depressing. And Jesus said, no, bring him here. Bring him here. Jesus proclaimed with word and with deed. Right? I would say, gosh, I don't even know. This would be a great study. I, I don't even know if you could say equally. I think the ultimate exclamation point on that is the cross, which he said with very little words, which he did, excuse me, with very little words. And maybe the epitome of this New Testament picture is found in Luke 10. This question. Who is my neighbor? You know the story. The lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the testing. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? This is a lawyer, right? He knows what he's doing. He's no fool. He knows how to interact in the courtroom. My mom was a lawyer, and when I was in trouble, there was no way getting out of it. <laughs> Believe me, I tried. Sit up and put him in the testing. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's a good." Jewish lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Bingo. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself. Wow. Desiring to justify himself. Man, I I, I did not think about that until I'm just reading this, but for those of you who are taking notes, in what ways do I desire to justify myself, my action or my inaction? That's convicting for me, thinking through decisions I'm making right now in my life about where I serve and how I serve and what I commit to. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor then? So Jesus tells this story. We started with this picture. Jesus says, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, so a Jew, and he fell among the robbers who had stripped him and beat him, and he fell among robbers, excuse me, who stripped him, so he's naked, who beat him, and they departed, leaving this man half dead, we're told. Now by chance, lucky for him, a priest is walking by. And what does this priest do now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him this is a representative, the head of the church. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, what did the Levite do? passed by on the other side also. But then there was this man. There was this man who, for a Jew, was an enemy. Not just somebody he didn't like, but for a Jew was an enemy. Okay? But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. I've preached a couple of times here at New Life Downtown, and every time I preach, I try and work in the word compassion, because it's my favorite word in the entire Bible. It means that something inside of him got so knotted up, it's physical, it's a physical word, that he could not do nothing. Okay, that's what compassion means. When the father runs to the son, he had compassion on him. When Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. Something happened inside of him that he could not ignore. So the Samaritan came to where he was when he saw him. He had compassion on his enemy. I don't think he was thinking about him as an enemy at this moment. So he goes to him. He binds up his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. Then he set him on his own animal. I would imagine that he was not riding his calf or his donkey or his horse. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. And there he took care of him, we're told. He gets a room for this guy. And they share a room and he continues, I would imagine, to pour oil and wine. Continues to dress to manage his wounds, his bandages. And then the next day, the next morning... He took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of them. And whatever more you spend, there's a financial commitment. There's a risk of safety. Okay? This guy was just robbed. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know who might be coming for him. So his life perhaps is at risk to some degree. Doesn't matter. There's a risk of association. He's a Samaritan, right? They're on the same road. What if people traveling this road see him helping a Jew? There's a risk of his identity, his, his uh, um, what am I thinking of? His stat, yeah, there you go. His status, I'm thinking about um, popularity, um, being in jeopardy. And then there's a financial obligation, cost to this. And he tells the innkeeper, whatever it costs and then some, I'll pay you back. All of it. All of it. Took two denarii out, gave him to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. I'm not done yet. I'm coming back, he says. So which of these three do you think, Jesus says, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, I can imagine at this point, gets it. I would imagine, like the son running home to his father, he has a lights coming on moment, comes to his senses. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. There's that word again, chesed. The one who showed him loving and kindness. And Jesus said to him, again, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I want to read this real quick, if I have it in here. Not everyone may be a brother or a sister in the faith, but everyone is your neighbor, is a short answer to that question. Who is my neighbor? has nothing to do. Yes, is there a physical, is there a proximal um, aspect to our neighbors? Yes, and guess what? You should. Not every single one of your neighbors is poor, or not every one of the poor in your world may be poor monetarily. Again, we don't have time to talk about the different aspects of poverty as much, because I know Matthew did a great job covering it last week. Is there a proximal aspect? Absolutely. This is what Tim Keller has to say about this, and I love this story. Because in order to show this kind of neighbor love, you have to first receive neighbor love. In order to show a neighbor love the way that Jesus intended, you have to first receive. It has to become your experience. We say this oftentimes at New Life Downtown, that the closer one draws near to Jesus, the more we're turned outwardly. That is the you are and you are becoming of where we started, okay? This is what T.K. has to say about this story. He says, according to the Bible, we're all like that man, like the man beaten, bloody, wounded. Think about this for a second. I trust T.K. According to the Bible, we, all are, we are all like that, ma- that man dying in the road. Spiritually, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.5 affirms that. But when Jesus came into our dangerous world, when Jesus was incarnate, took on flesh, moved into the neighborhood. When Jesus came into our dangerous world, He came down our road. And though we had been His enemies, He was moved with compassion by our plight. Romans five ten. He came to us and He saved us. Not merely at the risk of his life, as in the cases of the Samaritan, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, he paid a debt we could have never paid ourselves. And I love this line. Again, this is from a book called Generous Justice. Jesus, excuse me, T.K. says that Jesus is the great Samaritan to whom all good Samaritans point. Jesus is the great Samaritan to whom all good Samaritans point. We cannot give what we do not have, so in order to offer a neighbor love, we first have to receive a neighbor love. We have to receive that which God has bestowed upon you, not only in identity, but His very Spirit. We have the privilege of drawing near to God and allowing what affects His heart to affect our heart. And it comes at a cost. Think about all of the stories. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Leave your nets and follow me. There's such an invitation, an opportunity, and it comes with a cost. I'll close with this passage from James and then I'll pray. James one twenty-seven. You didn't think I was going to not read this, right? James says this, the religion. What a fascinating word, Religion. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To be different. To be a sign, something, someone, a church, an individual that points others towards the kingdom, towards the Father. To be a symbol, be a representation of, that others would see you and recognize God the Father, that others would see you and recognize Jesus, that others would see the communities you're part of, the activity that you've set your hand to, some with great cost, and recognize the kingdom that work here on earth, and that you would be a foretaste, that you would be for them a representation, that you would be good news, that you would be good news right now. Eternal doesn't mean later, eternal means unending. That you would be Good news of the eternal life that is available, present right here, right now for who? For who? Yeah. Please. Hi, hey guys. My name is Will Worley.
1: I've been dealing with chronic homelessness with my mother passed away over a year ago. And, um, you know, I don't need to break down the whole testimony, but, uh, in the last two weeks, a little over two weeks ago, I came here. I came back here because I felt God more more here in this area than I had in my whole life, and more love, and more favor than any other place I've ever been to. And I come back, and I was homeless on street for two days. There was a brother uh, two Sundays ago that was leaving here. His name was Brother Eric. You may know him. Uh, Eric, Eric uh, mm-hmm. saw me and my puppy walking. He showed favor and actually gave me time of day. You know, there's a lot of people, because I never changed my attitude. Two days I was here homeless. You know, I'd still to speak to people and I'd speak back because I looked at it. You know, and uh, maybe, you know, it's too much. But um, Eric showed me favor through God. And he said, new me fences. And um, I found sober that night. It was a Sunday. And I came back here to work for a previous employer, which I needed to start work on Monday. So I was just eating down, grease the socks. Didn't know what was going to happen. Really super stressed out. And he helped me take me a few places so I could find shelter. And that was uh, just a little over two weeks ago. I came here and I, and I worked for my employer. Things went great. And then I went to the Springs Rescue Mission to go and find out about some injuries. Mm. And I shared stories, here and testimonies with a lady that's working there. M- 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 and uh, she got a little bit sick. God told her, to her to take this application. Long story short, uh, I, I now work for, mm. for the... Uh, out there, Come on. And I came here this morning special, I was right another brother and he helped me find something inviting me here and he might have not thought that I was going to come that Sunday and I I've made this my home church and I came here this morning to learn as much more as I can uh, to help the ones that I live side by side. I live the hard thing children and I work at the students that I So, God is working for my life to be to be. and now am so prepared to do and people out there in the world and they need us
0: Joel, thanks, brother. If you're sitting near somebody, grab their hand. If not, just put your palms up. Jesus, we are, um, we're all a little tattered, aren't we? I know I am. And you still, still turn towards me. You still offer freely. The same love that made me fall in love with you the first time. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for continuing to choose us, for choosing us, for loving us, for holding absolutely nothing back. For for being so lavish towards us. With your Father, love, Jesus, would you draw us into that place of intimacy with you where our hearts can't help, where we feel the effects of compassion, where our hearts can't help but be broken for the things that break your heart. And if they're not ready, they're not ready. But when they are Jesus, would you show us, would you turn us, would you reveal us? We're feeling inclinations, God. Would you give us courage and boldness to go so that we would learn. We could find you in the midst of serving, that we could see and know you in the midst of of loving others. But Jesus, in all of it, selfishly, we want you. And we want others to to want you to, to know you, to know the you that we know. So Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for this church and what you're doing in and through New Life downtown, in the city, in the lives of men and women, uh, whose situations look different than ours. We give you all glory and honor. It's in your name. Amen.